0: chapter two of the old adam by arnold bennett this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox org the bank note One. alderman machin had to stand at the back and somewhat towards the side of that part of the auditorium known as the grand circle at the empire music hall hambridge the attendants at the entrance and in the lounge where the salutation welcome shone in electricity over a large cupid surrounded mirror had compassionately and yet exultingly told him there was not a seat left in the house he had shared their exultation he had said to himself full of honest pride in the five towns this music-hall admitted by the press to be one of the finest in the provinces holds over two thousand five hundred people and yet we can fill it to overflowing twice every night and only a few years ago there wasn't a decent music-hall in the entire district the word progress flitted through his head it was not strictly true that the empire was or could be filled to overflowing twice every night but it was true that at that particular moment not a seat was unsold and the aspect of a crowded auditorium is apt to give an optimistic quality to broad generalizations alderman Machin began instinctively to calculate the amount of money in the house and to wonder whether there would be a chance for a second music-hall in the dissipated town of hambridge he also wondered why the idea of a second music-hall in hambridge had never occurred to him before the grand circle was so called because it was grand its plush fauteuil cost a shilling no mean price for a community where seven pounds of potatoes can be bought for sixpence and the view of the stage therefrom was perfect but the alderman's view was far from perfect since he had to peer as best he could between and above the shoulders of several men each apparently but not really taller than himself by constant slight movements to comply with the movements of the rampart of shoulders he could discern fragments of various advertisements of soap motor cars whisky shirts perfume pills bricks and tea for the drop curtain was down and curiously he felt obliged to keep his eyes on the drop curtain and across the long intervening vista of hats and heads and smoke to explore its most difficult corners again and again lest when it went up he might not be in proper practice for seeing what was behind it nevertheless despite the marked inconveniences of his situation he felt brighter he felt almost happy in this dense atmosphere of success he even found a certain peculiar and perverse satisfaction in the fact that he had as yet been recognised by nobody once or twice the owners of shoulders had turned and deliberately glared at the worrying fellow who had the impudence to be all the time peeping over them and between them they had not distinguished the fellow from any ordinary fellow could they have known that he was the famous alderman edward henry machin founder and sole proprietor of the thrift club into which their wives were probably paying so much a week they would most assuredly have glared to another tune and they would have said with pride afterwards that chap machin a bursley was standing behind me at the empire to-night and though machin is amongst the commonest names in the five towns all would have known that the great and admired denry was meant it was astonishing that a personage so notorious should not have been instantly spotted in such a resort as the empire more proof that the five towns was a vast and seething concentration of cities and no longer a mere district where everybody knew everybody the curtain rose and as it did so a thunderous crashing applause of greeting broke forth applause that thrilled and impressed and inspired applause that made every individual in the place feel right glad that he was there for the curtain had risen on the gigantic attraction which many members of the audience were about to see for the fifth time that week in fact it was rumoured that certain men of fashion whose habit was to refuse themselves nothing had attended every performance of the gigantic attraction since the second house on monday the scene represented a restaurant of quiet aspect into which entered a waiter bearing a pile of plates some two feet high the waiter being intoxicated the tower of plates leaned this way and that as he staggered about and the whole house really did hold its breath in the simultaneous hope and fear of an enormous resounding smash then entered a second intoxicated waiter also bearing a pile of plates some two feet high and the risk of destruction was thus more than doubled it was quadrupled for each waiter, in addition to the risks of his own inebriety, was now subject to the dreadful peril of colliding with the other. However, there was no catastrophe. Then arrived two customers, one in a dress suit and an eyeglass, and the other in a large violet hat, a diamond necklace, and a yellow satin skirt, the which customers, seemingly well used to the sight of drunken waiters tottering to and fro with towers of plates sat down at a table and waited calmly for attention the popular audience with that quick mental grasp for which popular audiences are so renowned soon perceived that the table was in close proximity to a lofty sideboard and that on either hand of the sideboard were two chairs upon which the two waiters were trying to climb in order to deposit their plates on the topmost shelf of the sideboard the waiters successfully mounted the chairs and successfully lifted their towers of plates to within half an inch of the desired shelf and then the chairs began to show signs of insecurity by this time the audience was stimulated to an ecstasy of expectation whose painfulness was only equalled by its extreme delectability the sole unmoved persons in the building were the customers awaiting attention at the restaurant table one tower was safely lodged on the shelf but was it it was not yes no it's curved it's straightened it's curved again the excitement was as keen as that of watching a drowning man attempt to reach the shore it was simply excruciating it could not be borne any longer and when it could not be borne any longer the tower sprawled irrevocably and seven dozen plates fell in a cascade on the violet hat and so with an inconceivable clatter to the floor almost at the same moment the being in the dress suit and the eyeglass becoming aware of the phenomena slightly unusual even in a restaurant dropped his eyeglass turned round to the sideboard and received the other waiter's seven dozen plates in the face and on the crown of his head no such effect had ever been seen in the five towns and the felicity of the audience exceeded all previous felicities the audience yelled roared shrieked gasped trembled and punched itself in a furious passion of pleasure they make plates in the five towns they live by making plates they understand plates in the five towns a man will carry not seven but twenty-seven dozen plates on a swaying plank for eight hours a day up steps and down steps and in doorways and out of doorways and not break one plate in seven years judge therefore the simple but terrific satisfaction of a five towns audience in the hugeness of the calamity moreover every plate smashed means a demand for a new plate and increased prosperity for the five towns the grateful crowd in the auditorium of the empire would have covered the stage with wreaths if it had known that wreaths were used for other occasions than funerals which it did not know fresh complications instantly ensued which cruelly cut short the agreeable exercise of uncontrolled laughter it was obvious that one of the waiters was about to fall and in the enforced tranquillity of a new dread every dyspeptic person in the house was deliciously conscious of a sudden freedom from indigestion due to the agreeable exercise of uncontrolled laughter and wished fervently that he could laugh like that after every meal the waiter fell He fell through the large violet hat and disappeared beneath the surface of a sea of crockery the other waiter fell too but the sea was not deep enough to drown a couple of them then the customers recovering themselves decided that they must not be outclassed in this competition of havoc and they overthrew the table and everything on it and all the other tables and everything on all the other tables the audience was now a field of artillery which nothing could silence the waiters arose and opening the sideboard disclosed many hundreds of unsuspected plates of all kinds ripe for smashing Niagara's of plates surged on to the stage all four performers revelled and wallowed in smashed plates new supplies of plates were constantly being produced from strange concealments and finally the tables and chairs were broken to pieces and each object on the walls was torn down and flung in bits on to the gorgeous general debris to the top of which clambered the violet hat necklace and yellow petticoat brandishing one single little plate whose life had been miraculously spared shrieks of joy in that little plate played over the din like lightning in a thunderstorm and the curtain fell it was rung up fifteen times and fifteen times the quartet of artists breathless bowed in acknowledgment of the frenzied and boisterous testimony to their unique talents no singer no tragedian no comedian no wit could have had such a triumph could have given such intense pleasure and yet none of the four had spoken a word such is genius at the end of the fifteenth call the stage manager came before the curtain And guaranteed that two thousand four hundred plates had been broken. The lights went up. Strong men were seen to be wiping tears from their eyes. Complete strangers were seen addressing each other in the manner of old friends. Such is art. Well, that was worth a bob, that was, muttered Edward Henry to himself. And it was Edward Henry had not escaped the general fate. Nobody being present could have escaped it he was enchanted he had utterly forgotten every care good evening mr machin said a voice at his side not only he turned but nearly everyone in the vicinity turned the voice was the voice of the stout and splendid managing director of the empire and it sounded with the ring of authority above the rising tinkle of the bar behind the grand circle oh how do you do mr dakins edward henry held out a cordial hand for even the greatest men are pleased to be greeted in a place of entertainment by the managing director thereof. Further, his identity was now recognized have "'Aven't you seen those gentlemen in that box beckoning to you?' said Mr. Dakin's, proudly deprecating complimentary remarks on the show. "'Which box?' Mr. Dakin's hand indicated the stage-box, and Henry, looking, saw three men, one unknown to him, the second— robert brindley the architect of bursley and the third dr stirling instantly his conscience leapt up within him he thought of rabies yes sobered in the fraction of a second he thought of rabies supposing that after all in spite of mr long's muzzling order as cited by his infant son an odd case of rabies should have lingered in the british isles and supposing that carlo had been infected not impossible was it providential that dr stirling was in the auditorium you know two of them said mr dakins yes well the third's a mr bryany he's manager to mr seven sachs mr dakin's tone was respectful and who's mr seven sachs asked edward henry absently it was a stupid question he was impressively informed that mr seven sachs was the arch-famous american actor playwright now nearing the end of a provincial tour which had surpassed all records of provincial tours, and that he would be at the Theatre Royal Hambridge next week. Edward Henry then remembered that the hoardings had been full of Mr. Seven-Sacks for some time past. "'They keep on making signs to you,' said Mr. Dakins, referring to the occupants of the stage-box. Edward Henry waved a reply to the box. "'Here, I'll take you there the shortest way.' said mr dakins two welcome to stirling's box machin robert brindley greeted the alderman with an almost imperceptible wink edward henry had encountered this wink once or twice before he could not decide precisely what it meant it was apt to make him reflective he did not dislike robert brindley his habit was not to dislike people he admitted brindley to be a clever architect though he objected to the modern style of the fronts of his houses and schools but he did take exception to the man's attitude towards the five towns of which by the way brindley was just as much a native as himself brindley seemed to live in the five towns like a highly cultured stranger in a savage land and to derive rather too much sardonic amusement from the spectacle of existence therein brindley was a very special crony of stirlings and had influenced stirling but stirling was too clever to submit unduly to the influence besides stirling was not a native he was only a scotchman and edward henry considered that what stirling thought of the district did not matter other details about brindley which edward henry deprecated were his necktie which for edward henry's taste was too flowing his scorn of the pianisto despite the man's tremendous interest in music and his incipient madness on the subject of books a madness shared by stirling brindley and the doctor were for ever chattering about books and buying them so that on the whole dr stirling's box was not a place where edward henry felt entirely at home nevertheless the two men having presented mr bryany did their best each in his own way to make him feel at home take this chair meachin said stirling indicating a chair at the front oh i can't take the front chair edward henry protested of course you can my dear machin said brindley sharply the front chair in a stage-box is the one proper seat in the house for you do as your doctor prescribes and edward henry accordingly sat down at the front with mr bryany by his side and the other two sat behind but edward henry was not quite comfortable he faintly resented that speech of brindley's and yet he did feel that what brindley had said was true and he was indeed glad to be in the front chair of a brilliant stage-box on the grand tier instead of being packed away in the nethermost twilight of the grand circle he wondered how brindley and stirling had managed to distinguish his face among the confusion of faces in that distant obscurity he edward henry had failed to notice them even in the prominence of their box but that they had distinguished him showed how familiar and striking a figure he was he wondered too why they should have invited him to hobnob with them he was not of their set indeed like many very eminent men he was not to any degree in anybody's set of one thing he was sure because he had read it on the self-conscious faces of all three of them namely that they had been discussing him possibly he had been brought up for mr bryany's inspection as a major lion and character of the district well he did not mind that nay he enjoyed that he could feel mr bryany covertly looking him over and he thought look my boy i make no charge he smiled and nodded to one or two people who with pride saluted him from the stalls it was meet that he should be visible there on that friday night a full house he observed to break the rather awkward silence of the box as he glanced round at the magnificent smoke-veiled pageant of the aristocracy and the democracy of the five towns crowded together tier above gilded tier up to the dim roof where ragged lads and maids giggled and flirted while waiting for the broken plates to be cleared away and the moving pictures to begin you may say it agreed mr bryany who spoke with a very slight american accent "'Dakins positively hadn't a seat to offer me. "'I happened to have the evening free. "'It isn't often I do have a free evening, "'and so I thought I'd pop in here. "'But if Dakins hadn't introduced me to these gentlemen, "'my seat would have had to be a standing one.' "'So that's how they got to know him, is it?' "'thought Edward Henry. "'And then there was another short silence. "'Here you've been doing something striking in rubbishers, shares, Machin,' "'said Brindley at length. "'Astonishing how these things got abroad!' oh very little very little edward henry laughed modestly too late to do much in another fortnight the bottom will be all out of the rubber market of course i'm an englishman mr Bryany began why of course edward henry interrupted him here here alderman why of course said brindley approvingly and stirling's rich laugh was heard only it does just happen brindley added that mr Brinley did us the honour to be born in the district yes longshaw mr bryany admitted half proud and half apologetic which i left at the end of two oh longshaw murmured edward henry with a peculiar inflection which had a distinct meaning for at least two of his auditors longshaw is at the opposite end of the five towns from bursley and the majority of the inhabitants of bursley have never been to longshaw in their lives have only heard of it as they hear of chicago or bangkok edward henry had often been to Longshore, but like every visitor from bursley he instinctively regarded it as a foolish and unnecessary place as i was saying resumed mr bryany quite unintimidated i'm an englishman but i've lived eighteen years in america and it seems to me the bottom will soon be knocked out of pretty nearly all the markets in england look at the five towns no don't mr bryany said brindley don't go to extremes personally i don't mind looking at the five towns said edward henry what of it well did you ever see such people for looking twice at a five-pound note edward henry most certainly did not like this aspersion on his native district he glanced in silence at mr bryany's brassy and yet simple face and did not like the face either and mr bryany beautifully unaware that he had failed in tact, continued. "'The Five Towns is the most English place I have ever seen, believe me. Of course, it has its good points, and England has her good points, but there's no money stirring. There's no field for speculation on the spot. And as for outside investment, no Englishman will touch anything that really is good,' he emphasised the last three words. "'What do you do yourself, Mr. Bryany?" inquired Dr. Stirling what do i do with my little bit cried mr bryany oh i know what to do with my little bit i can get ten per cent in seattle and twelve to fifteen in calgary on my little bit and security just as good as english railway stock and better the theatre was darkened and the cinematograph began its reckless twinkling mr bryany went on offering to edward henry in a suitably lowered voice His views on the great questions of investment and speculation, and Edward Henry made cautious replies. And even when there is a good thing going at home, Mr Bryany said in a wounded tone, what Englishman'd look at it? I would, said Edward Henry with a blandness that was only skin deep, for all the time he was cogitating the question whether the presence of Dr Stirling in the audience ought or ought not to be regarded as providential. Now I've got the option on a little affair in London said mr bryany while edward henry glanced quickly at him in the darkness can i get anybody to go into it i can't what sort of a little affair building a theatre in the west end even a less impassive man than edward henry would have started at the coincidence of this remark and edward henry started twenty minutes ago he had been idly dreaming of theatrical speculation and now he could almost see theatrical speculation shimmering before him in the pale shifting rays of the cinematograph that cut through the gloom of the mysterious auditorium. Oh! And in this new interest he forgot the enigma of the ways of providence. Of course, you know I'm in the business, said Mr. Bryany. I'm seven sachs's manager. It was as if he owned and operated Mr. seven sachs. So I heard, said Mr. Edward Henry, and then remarked with mischievous cordiality and i suppose these chaps told you i was the sort of man you were after and you got them to ask me in eh mr bryany mr bryany gave an uneasy laugh but seemed to find naught to say well what is your little affair edward henry encouraged him oh i can't tell you now said mr bryany it would take too long the thing has to be explained but what about tomorrow? i have to leave for london by the first train in the morning well some other time after to-morrow will be too late but well, what about to-night the fact is i've half promised to go with dr stirling to some club or other after the show otherwise we might have had a quiet confidential chat in my rooms over the turk's head i never dreamt mr bryany was now as melancholy as a greedy lad who regards rich fruit at arm's length through a plate-glass window and he had ceased to be patronising i'll soon get rid of stirling for you said edward henry "'turning instantly towards the doctor. "'The ways of providence had been made plain to Edward Henry. "'I say, Doc.' "'But the doctor and Brindley were in conversation "'with another man at the open door of the box. "'What is it?' said Stirling. "'I've come to fetch you. "'You want it at my place.' "'Well, you're a caution,' said Stirling. "'Why am I a caution?' "'Edward Henry smoothly protested. "'I didn't tell you before because I didn't want to spoil your fun.' "'Stirling's mien was not happy.' did they tell you i was here he asked you'd almost think so wouldn't you said edward henry in a playful enigmatic tone after all he decided privately his wife was right it was better that stirling should see the infant and there was also this natural human thought in his mind he objected to the doctor giving an entire evening to diversions away from home he considered that a doctor when not on a round of visits ought to be for ever in his consulting-room ready for a sudden call of emergency it was monstrous that stirling should have proposed after an escapade at the music-hall to spend further hours with chance acquaintances in vague clubs half the town might fall sick and die while the doctor was vainly amusing himself thus the righteous layman in edward henry what's the matter asked stirling my eldest's been rather badly bitten by a dog and the missus wants it cauterized really well you bet she does where's the bite in the calf the other man at the door having departed robert brindley abruptly joined the conversation at this point i suppose you've heard of that case of hydrophobia at bleakridge said brindley edward henry's heart jumped no i haven't he said anxiously what is it he gazed at the white blur of brindley's face in the darkened box and he could hear the rapid clicking of the cinematograph behind him didn't you see it in the signal no neither did i said brindley at the same moment the moving pictures came to an end the theatre was filled with light and the band began to play god save the king brindley and stirling were laughing and indeed brindley had scored this time over the unparalleled card of the five towns i make you a present of that said edward henry but my wife's most precious infant has to be cauterised doctor he added firmly got your car here stirling questioned no have you no well there's a tram i'll follow you later i have some business round this way persuade my wife not to worry will you and when a discontented dr stirling had made his excuses and adieu to mr bryany and robert brindley had decided that he could not leave his crony to travel by tram-car alone and the two men had gone then edward henry turned to mr bryany that's how i get rid of the doctor you see but has your child been bitten by a dog asked mr bryany acutely perplexed you'd almost think so wouldn't you edward henry replied carefully non-committal what price going to the turk's head now he remembered with satisfaction and yet with misgiving a remark made to him a judgment passed on him by a very old woman very many years before this discerning hag the widow hullins by name had said to him briefly well you're a queer un three within five minutes he was following mr bryany into a small parlour on the first floor of the turk's head a room with which he had no previous acquaintance though like most industrious men of affairs in metropolitan hambridge he reckoned to know something about the Turk's head. Mr. Bryany turned up the gas. The Turk's head took pride in being a hostelry, and while it had accustomed itself to incandescent mantles on the ground floor, it had not yet conquered a natural distaste for electricity, and Edward Henry saw a smart dispatch-box, a dress-suit, a trouser-stretcher, and other necessaries of theatrical business-life at large in the apartment. "'I've never seen this room before,' said edward henry take your overcoat off and sit down will you said mr bryany as he turned to replenish the fire from a bucket it's my private sitting-room whenever i'm on my travels i always take a private sitting-room it pays you know course i mean if i'm alone when i'm looking after mr sachs of course we share a sitting-room edward henry agreed lightly i suppose so but the fact was he was very much impressed he himself had never taken a private sitting-room in any hotel he had sometimes felt the desire but he had not had the face as they say down here to do it to take a private sitting-room in a hotel was generally regarded in the five towns as the very summit of dashing expensiveness and futile luxury i didn't know they had private sitting-rooms in this shanty said edward henry mr bryany having finished with the fire fronted him shovel in hand with a remarkable air of consummate wisdom and replied you generally can get what you want if you insist on having it even in this shanty edward henry regretted his use of the word shanty inhabitants of the five towns may allow themselves to twit the historic and excellent turk's head but they do not extend the privilege to strangers and in justice to the turk's head it is to be clearly stated that it did no more to cow and discourage travellers than any other provincial hotel in england it was a sound and serious english provincial hotel and it linked century to century said mr bryany america's the place for hotels yes i expect it is been to chicago no i haven't mr bryany as he removed his overcoat could be seen politely forbearing to raise his eyebrows of course you've been to new york Edward Henry would have given all he had in his pockets to be able to say that he had been to New York. But, by some inexplicable negligence, he had hitherto omitted to go to New York. And, being a truthful person, except in the gravest crises, he was obliged to answer miserably, No, I haven't. Mr. Bryony gazed at him with amazement and compassion, apparently staggered by the discovery that there existed in England a man of the world, who had contrived to struggle on for forty years without perfecting his education by a visit to New York? Edward Henry could not tolerate Mr. Bryany's look. It was a look which he had never been able to tolerate on the features of anybody whatsoever. He reminded himself that his secret object in accompanying Mr. Bryany to the Turk's Head was to repay Mr. Bryany, in what coin he knew not yet, for the aspersions which, at the music-hall, he had cast upon England in general and upon the five towns in particular, and also to get revenge for having been tricked into believing, even for a moment, that there was really a case of hydrophobia at Bleakridge. It is true that Mr. Briony was innocent of this deception, which had been accomplished by Robert Brindley, but that was a detail which did not trouble Edward Henry, who lumped his grievances together for convenience. He had been reflecting that some sentimental people, unused to the ways of paternal affection in the five towns might consider him a rather callous father he had been reflecting again that nelly's suggestion of blood poisoning might not be as entirely foolish as feminine suggestions in such circumstances too often are but now he put these thoughts away reassuring himself against hydrophobia anyhow by the recollection of the definite statement of the encyclopaedia moreover had he not inspected the wound as healthy a wound as you could wish for and he said in a new tone very curtly now mr bryany what about this little affair of yours he saw that mr bryany accepted the implied rebuke with the deference properly shown by a man who needs something towards the man in possession of what he needs and studying the fellow's countenance he decided that despite its brassiness and simple cunning it was scarcely the countenance of a rascal well it's like this said mr bryany sitting down opposite edward henry at the centre table and reaching with obsequious liveliness for the dispatch-box he drew from the dispatch-box which was lettered w c b first a cut-glass flask of whisky with a patent stopper and then a spacious box of cigarettes i always travel with the right sort he remarked holding the golden liquid up to the light it's safer and it saves any trouble with orders after closing time these english hotels you know so saying he dispensed whisky and cigarettes there being a siphon and glasses and three matches in a match stand on the table here's looking he said with raised glass and edward henry responded in conformity with the changeless ritual of the five towns i looks and they sipped whereupon Mr. Bryany next drew from the dispatch-box a piece of transparent paper. "'I want you to look at this plan of Piccadilly Circus and Environs,' said he. "'Now, there is a Piccadilly in Hambridge, also a Pall Mall and a Chancery Lane. The adjective, Metropolitan, applied to Hambridge, is just. "'London?' questioned Edward Henry. "'I understood London when we were chatting over there.' With his elbow he indicated the music-hall "'somewhere vaguely outside the room.' "'London,' said Mr. Bryany," "'And Edward Henry thought, "'What on earth am I meddling with London for? "'What use should I be in London?' "'You see the plot marked in red,' Mr. Bryany proceeded. "'Well, that's the site. "'There's an old chapel on it now.' "'What do all these straight lines mean?' "'Edward Henry inquired, examining the plan. "'Lines radiated from the red plot in various direction. "'Those are the lines of vision.' said mr briney they show just where an electric sign at the corner of the front of the proposed theatre could be seen from you notice the sight is not in the circus itself a shade to the north mr briney's finger approached edward henry's on the plan and the clouds from their cigarettes fraternally mingled now you see by those lines that the electric sign of the proposed theatre would be visible from nearly the whole of piccadilly circus parts of lower regent street coventry street and even shaftesbury avenue you see what a sight it is absolutely unique edward henry asked coldly have you bought it no mr bryany seemed to apologise i haven't exactly bought it but i've got an option on it the magic word option wakened the drowsy speculator in edward henry and the mere act of looking at the plan endowed the plot of land with reality there it was it existed an option to buy it you can't buy land in the west end of london said mr bryany sagely you can only lease it well of course edward henry concurred the freehold belongs to lord waldo now aged six months really murmured edward henry i've got an option to take up the remainder of the lease with sixty-four years to run on the condition i put up a theatre and the option expires in exactly a fortnight's time edward henry frowned and then asked what are the figures that is to say mr Briny corrected himself smiling courteously i've got half the option and who's got the other half rose euclid's got the other half at the mention of the name of one of the most renowned star actresses in england edward henry excusably started not thee he exclaimed mr Briny nodded proudly blowing out much smoke tell me asked edward henry confidentially leaning forward where do those ladies get their names from it happens in this case to be her real name said mr bryany her father kept a tobacconist shop in cheapside the sign was kept up for many years until rose paid to have it changed well well breathed edward henry secretly thrilled by these extraordinary revelations and so you and she have got it between you mr bryany said i bought half of it from her some time ago she was badly hard up for a hundred pounds and i let her have the money he threw away his cigarette half smoked with a free gesture that seemed to imply that he was capable of parting with a hundred pounds just as easily how did she get the option edward henry inquired putting into the query all of the innuendo of a man accustomed to look at great worldly affairs from the inside how did she get it She got it from the late Lord Waldo. She was always very friendly with the late Lord Waldo, you know. Edward Henry nodded. Why, she and the Countess of Chell are as thick as thieves. You know something about the Countess down here, I reckon. The Countess of Chell was the wife of the supreme local magnate. Edward Henry answered calmly, We do. He was tempted to relate a unique adventure of his youth, when he had driven the countess to a public meeting in his mule carriage but sheer pride kept him silent i asked you for the figures he added in a manner which requested mr bryany to remember that he was the founder chairman and proprietor of the five towns universal thrift club one of the most successful business organizations in the midlands here they are said mr bryany passing across the table a sheet of paper and as edward henry studied them he could hear mr bryany faintly cooing into his ear of course rose got the ground rent reduced and when i tell you that the demand for theatres in the west end far exceeds the supply and the theatre rents are always going up when i tell you that a theatre costing twenty five thousand pounds to build can be let for eleven thousand pounds a year and often three hundred pounds a week on a short term and he could hear the gas singing over his head, and also, unhappily, he could hear Dr. Stirling talking to his wife, and saying to her that the bite was far more serious than it looked, and Nelly, hoping very audibly that nothing had happened to him, her still absent husband, and then he could hear Mr. Bryony again. When I tell you, when you tell me all this, Mr. Bryany, he interrupted, with the ferocity which in the five towns is regarded as mere directness i wonder why the devil you want to sell your half of the option if you do want to sell it do you want to sell it to tell you the truth said mr bryany as if up to that moment he had told naught but lies i do why oh i'm always travelling about you see england one day america the next apparently he had quickly abandoned the strictness of veracity all depends on the governor's movement i couldn't keep a proper eye on an affair of that kind edward henry laughed and could i chance for you to go a bit oftener to london said mr bryany laughing too then with extreme and convincing seriousness you're the very man for a thing of that kind and you know it edward henry was not displeased by this flattery how much well i told you frankly what i paid i made no concealment of that did i now i want what i paid it's worth it got a copy of the option i hope mr bryany produced a copy of the option i'm nothing but an infernal ass to mix myself up in a mad scheme like this said edward henry to his soul perusing the documents it's right off my line right bang off it but what a lark but even to his soul he did not utter the remainder of the truth about himself namely i should like to cut a dash before this insufferable patroniser of england and the five towns suddenly something snapped within him and he said to mr bryany i'm on those words and no more you are mr bryany exclaimed mistrusting his ears edward henry nodded well that's business anyway said mr bryany taking a fresh cigarette and lighting it it's how we do business down here said edward henry quite inaccurately for it was not in the least how they did business down there mr bryany asked with a rather obvious anxiety but when can you pay oh i'll send you a cheque in a day or two and edward henry in his turn took a fresh cigarette that won't do cried mr bryany i absolutely must have the money tomorrow morning in london i can sell the option in london for eighty pounds i know that you must have it must they exchanged glances, and Edward Henry, rapidly acquiring new knowledge of human nature on the threshold of a world strange to him, understood that Mr. Bryany, with his private sitting-room and his investments in Seattle and Calgary, was at his wits' end for a bag of English sovereigns and had trusted to some chance encounter to save him from a calamity. And his contempt for Mr. Bryany was that of a man to whom his bankers are positively servile. Here, Mr. Bryany almost shouted, "'Don't light your cigarette with my option!' Oh, "'I beg pardon,' Edward Henry apologised, dropping the document, which he had creased into a spill. "'There were no matches left on the table. "'I'll find you a match.' "'It's of no consequence,' said Edward Henry, feeling in his pockets. Having discovered therein a piece of paper, he twisted it, and rose to put it to the gas. "'Could you slip round to your bank and meet me at the station in the morning with the cash?' Suggested Mr. Bryany. No, I couldn't, said Edward Henry. Well, then, what? Here, you'd better take this. The card, reborn, soothed his host, and blowing out the spill which he had just ignited at the gas, he offered it to Mr. Bryany. What? This, man. Mr. Bryany, observing the peculiarity of the spill, seized it and unrolled it, not without a certain agitation. He stammered, do you mean to say it's genuine you'd almost think so wouldn't you said edward henry he was growing fond of this reply and of the enigmatic playful tone that he had invented for it but we may as you say look twice at a fiver continued edward henry but we're apt to be careless about hundred-pound notes in this district i dare say that's why i always carry one but it's burnt only just the edge not enough to harm it If any bank in England refuses it, return it to me, and I'll give you a couple more in exchange. Is that talking? Well, I'm dashed. Mr. Bryany attempted to rise, and then subsided back into his chair. I am simply and totally dashed. He smiled weakly, hysterically. And in that instant, Edward Henry felt all the sweetness of a complete and luscious revenge. He said commandingly, "'You must sign me a transfer.' i'll dictate it then he jumped up you're in a hurry i am my wife is expecting me you promised to find me a match edward henry waved the unlit cigarette as a reproach to mr bryany's imperfect hospitality four the clock of bleakridge church still imperturbably shining in the night showed a quarter to one when he saw it again on his hurried and guilty way home the pavements were drying in the fresh night wind and he had his overcoat buttoned up to the neck he was absolutely solitary in the long muddy perspective of trafalgar road he walked because the last tram-car was already housed in its shed at the other end of the world and he walked quickly because his conscience drove him onwards and yet he dreaded to arrive lest a wound in the child's leg should have maliciously decided to fester in order to put him in the wrong he was now as apprehensive concerning that wound as nelly herself had been at tea-time but in his mind above the dark gulf of anxiety there floated brighter thoughts despite his fears and his remorse as a father he laughed aloud in the deserted street when he remembered mr bryany's visage of astonishment upon uncreasing the note indubitably he made a terrific and everlasting impression on mr bryany he was sending mr Bryany out of the five towns a different man he had taught mr Bryany a thing or two to what brilliant use had he turned the purely accidental possession of a hundred pound note one of his finest inspirations an inspiration worthy of the great days of his youth yes he had had his hour that evening and it had been a glorious one also it had cost him a hundred pounds and he did not care he would retire to bed with a net gain of two hundred and forty one pounds instead of three hundred and forty one pounds that was all for he did not mean to take up the option the ecstasy was cooled now and he saw clearly that london and theatrical enterprises therein would not be suited to his genius in the five towns he was on his own ground he was a figure he was sure of himself in london he would be a provincial with the diffidence and the uncertainty of a provincial nevertheless london seemed to be summoning him from afar off and he dreamt agreeably of london as one dreams of the impossible east as soon as he opened the gate in the wall of his property he saw that the drawing-room was illuminated and all the other front rooms in darkness either his wife or his mother then was sitting up in the drawing-room he inserted a cautious latch-key into the door and entered the silent home like a sinner the dim light in the hall gravely reproached him all his movements were modest and restrained no noisy rattling of his stick now the drawing-room door was slightly ajar he hesitated and then nerving himself pushed against it nelly with lowered head was seated at a table mending the image of tranquillity and soft resignation a pile of children's garments lay by her side but the article in her busy hands appeared to be an undershirt of his own none but she ever reinforced the buttons on his linen such was her wifely rule and he considered that there was no sense in it she was working by the light of a single lamp on the table the splendid chandelier being out of action her economy in the use of electricity was incurable and he considered that there was no sense in that either She glanced up with a guarded expression that might have meant anything. He said, "'Aren't you trying your eyes?' And she replied, "'Oh, no.' Then, plunging, he came to the point. "'Well, doctor been here?' She nodded. "'What does he say?' "'It's quite all right. He did nothing but cover up the place with a bit of cyanide gauze.' Instantly, in his own esteem, he regained perfection as a father. Of course the bite was nothing.' had he not said so from the first had he not been quite sure throughout that the bite was nothing then why did you sit up he asked and there was a faint righteous challenge in his tone i was anxious about you i was afraid didn't stirling tell you i had some business i forget i told him to anyhow important business it must have been said nelly in an inscrutable voice she rose and gathered together her paraphernalia and he saw that she was wearing the damnable white apron the close atmosphere of the home enveloped and stifled him once more how different was this exasperating interior from the large jolly freedom of the empire music-hall and from the whisky cigarettes and masculinity of that private room at the turk's head it was he repeated grimly and resentfully very important "'and I'll tell you another thing. "'I shall probably have to go to London.' "'He said this just to startle her. "'It will do you all the good in the world,' "'she replied angelically, but unstartled. "'It's just what you need.' "'And she gazed at him as though his welfare and felicity "'were her sole preoccupation. "'I meant that I might have to stop there quite a while,' "'he insisted. "'If you ask me,' she said, "'I think it would do us all good.' "'So saying she retired.' having expressed no curiosity whatever as to the nature of the very important business in london for a moment left alone he was at a loss then snorting he went to the table and extinguished the lamp he was now in darkness the light in the hall showed him the position of the door he snorted again oh very well then he muttered if that's it i'm hanged if i don't go to london End of chapter 2